This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Hi, the Family Feud Edition. I'm Avi Fongel in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, I talk to Daniel Hartman and try to understand the relationship between Israel and Israelis and Jews in the diaspora. All this plus news, nachas, and more coming right up. In the aftermath of the most recent Israeli elections, with the return of Benjamin Netanyahu and a far-right coalition likely placing Betzalel Smutrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir in positions of power, a surge of international Jewish organizations and leaders, including many in Canada, expressed grave concerns with the results. The Zionist arm of the worldwide Masarti conservative movement, Merkaz Olami, said in a statement, It is impossible to ignore the fact that the coalition which appears to be in the making will include politicians whose positions regarding basic elements of democracy and diversity, such as Jewish pluralism, LGBTQ, and vulnerable minorities, significantly differ from the values which have guided Zionism since its inception. In a widely read column in the New York Times titled The Israel We Knew Is Gone, Tom Friedman wrote that the likely incoming coalition would royal synagogues in America and across the globe, haunt pro-Israel students on college campuses, stress U.S. diplomats, and send friends of Israel in Congress fleeing from those demanding to know why the U.S. should continue sending billions of dollars to aid in Israel. On the other side, many Israelis, and diaspora Jews too, perceive this as a mass clutching of pearls by armchair critics who don't actually have to live under any of the policies they lecture about. They say, you don't pay taxes here, you don't send your children to the army, you can't spend all your time bragging about how Israel is the most amazing democracy in the history of forever, and then turn around and say the Israel we knew is gone when you don't like the results. But that sentiment seems to undercut the messaging drilled into us as Canadian Jews since the inception of modern Zionism, namely that Israel is a home for all the world's Jews, that it is central to our past and central to our collective futures. And that's why it's so important to give our full financial and political support to it, because each one of us, every member of the Jewish family, past, present, and future, has a stake there. All of which brings us to the central question of today. What should the stance of Israeli and international Jewry be towards one another? Is it you do you will do us to each their own? Or are we all bound up together in an international project that we all have a stake in? And how might that be shifting in the wake of the most recent elections? There's perhaps no better person to sort through all these questions with than our guest, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Hartman. Daniel lived in Montreal until 13 years old when his father, the well-known Rabbi David Hartman, and his family moved to Israel. There, David Hartman founded the Shalom Hartman Institute, which Daniel became president of in 2008. Daniel, welcome to Bonjour Chai. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Five years ago, you published an open letter to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, where you spoke about Israel choosing to bury its head in the sand about systemic problems in the relationship between Israel and the diaspora. You wrote that Israel has consistently denied the legitimacy of world Jewry and and their Judaism's. Zionism's belief that it alone was creating the new and noble Jew cleansed from the stains of diasporic existence instilled a deep disdain within Israel for the Jews who live outside the state. And you wrote that we have run out of time and these issues must be addressed. Could you elaborate on these ideas a little bit more? And do you think that the message has landed either with the old slash new prime minister or with the Israeli public since then? It connects very deeply to your your really interesting opening remarks, where at the end you said there's this side and this side, but the deep message that we've been taught is that we are connected to Israel. We, as in world Jewry, are connected. We have a stake here. So don't tell me I don't belong. You've told me all along that Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people, which means that it belongs to me too. And that is still something that most Israelis don't fully understand or fully accept. 
Paradoxically, the one who is most, uh, who's most committed to it in the current government will be Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he understands it. Whether it will serve, whether following it or, or strengthening it will serve the coalition or self-interest is another issue. And that we've seen already for many years, um, that the self-interest of the coalition is not to develop deep relations with world Jewry. And this coalition is filled with people who see, at least half the coalition, see world Jewry's Judaism. And the vast majority of world Jewry's Judaism is not orthodoxy. They see it as a problem. They see it as deficient. They see their job is to protect Israel from the Judaism that most world Jews are committed to. You know, the chief rabbi just said, you know, we have to, Israel is an orthodox country. You know, so, it's, so it could be that, is, first of all, Israel is not an orthodox country. But Israel is a country where orthodoxy represents authentic Judaism more than the other dominations. Um, but that's not the sentiment of world Jewry. And so there is an inherent tension going on here. And um, it's just, if I would change anything, you know, when you speak, what was it, five years ago, we always keep on saying we don't have any more time. <laughs> so I think I should stop talking about whether we don't have any more time. We, I don't know how much more time we have, but there is a problem. We might have more time, but this coalition is not a coalition attuned to the issues of world jury, and it's not even attuned to giving world jury a voice. And um, that is, uh, those two together pose a serious challenge for all of us, for you, Avi, for me, for whom... To be a Zionist means to enable Jews around the world to feel that Israel is an important part of their Jewish identity. Well, I'm not moving to Israel anytime soon, uh, even despite the fact that I am a Zionist, because I always say that the last thing Israel needs is yet another Anglo rabbi. <laughs> but Avi, but a Zionism, here it's interesting, for me, Zionism, to be a Zionist is not to move to Israel. To be a Zionist is exactly the, the argument that you articulated. It's to believe that Israel is an important and integral part of your Jewish life. Israel's not some overseas allocation. It's not just another place where there's Jews at risk. For you, Israel's an essential part of who you are as a Jew. That's what it means to be a Zionist. You know, that also still limits, and I'm not even sure what the answer is. What is my say with regards to what's going on there? And, and I'm not a big believer in these types of, this, types of, this type of language, but maybe with the rise of global anti-Semitism, I need a place to go and I should be able to have a say. This is my place, potentially, my refuge. And uh, I, I want to be able to know that this is where I'm going and I want to be able to have a say in this as a result. See, I, I make a very clear distinction between um, sharing what you feel and, 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 and determining uh, policy. Israel's a democracy. Whoever votes gets to shape the policies of the country. But world jury have a say. The question is whether Israelis are going to listen. See, Sidney Morgenbesser, the very famous philosopher, one of the most, the, the most significant philosophers of the 20th century, um, made the following distinction at a conference at the Institute. When he said at the time to a bunch of us Israelis, he said, I think... Israel has to get out of the West Bank, he said. And people jumped on him and said, what are you talking about? How dare you tell us what to do? You don't live here. Your kids aren't in the army, etc." And Sidney Morgan Besser laughed and smiled. And he said, excuse me, I apologize. I really believe I was misunderstood. 
I said to you, I think Israel should get out of the West Bank. I didn't tell you what to do. I told you what I think. World Jewry have a voice. World Jewry, if you don't have a voice, you won't have a relationship with Israel. At the end of the day, the legitimately elected government of Israel will decide policy. But you have to talk. You have a say. And, and whether they'll listen or not, it will be an interesting question. I do believe that your primary influence is both, it might be politically, but it is also in the social network, in the, in the third sector, in the educational and cultural center of Israeli life, who not one of them would exist without your support. There you have a much more powerful say. Do you think that the Israeli public understands the proverbial golden rule that uh, he who has the gold or she who has the gold rules and uh, and that we, we don't have a vote on paper, but but the rest of the world really votes with their dollars. And Israel's in this unique position that's probably one of the only countries that is propped up in a major way by foreign diasporic um, potential citizens. See, I think they do, but I think they think they now have the gold. Israel's wealthy. The sum total of money um, contributed by world jewelry to Israel is, is, is not of existential significance anymore. So your, your financial support doesn't give you um, the weight that you need. It doesn't anymore. Now it has to be the content of your message, not the coercive element or feature of your dollar. Uh, it's just not strong enough. Israel is, Israelis are wealthy. Um, now it's true. There are many cultural and educational institutions that need your support and that live off of them. Um, um, but Israelis don't necessarily equate that with political power. The people in those institutions are open to a dialogue with you. But it's, it's, we have to recognize that the power dynamic between Israel and world Jewry has shifted. And Israelis say, Avi, you said, you know, I, I have a right to talk because I might need to go there. And Israelis will say, if a time comes that you have to come here, are the doors open always? And when you come, now you have a vote. So, so that actually brings up a very important point, which is, and you brought up that Israel is not an Orthodox state, even though it is. And this is the point where it's starting to hinge for some people, where they're saying, well, who knows what the law of return will look like in f several years from now with a hard right government. I s can sympathize at least with the secular Jew who sees Israel as their primary faith, so to speak, and uh, is afraid of saying, you know, well, my father was the Jew and my mother is not necessarily. And uh, when the time comes, right, my, my, my insurance policy of supporting Israel, right, isn't, is, gonna, is not going to be there. And again, it's possibly because they're not thinking about these issues at a deeper level, but one can understand at least where that, those people are coming from. I appreciate it. And that's why we're talking, because we have to make sure that people, that there are literally millions and millions of Jews, the majority of Israeli society, if that moment came, we'll fight for them to come. And uh, that, uh, that I feel I, I have no doubt about. I hope so. What this touches on, actually, is something that I think about so much more than the you know Israel diaspora issue, um, but that so many of these issues is seem to be related to religion, and we 
we don't like to talk about it, right? We have this dual identity as a nation, as a faith. Nobody seems to want to talk about that. We're afraid of pointing out to the rest of the world the vast differences of faith because it complicates the narrative of Israel as this state that we belong in just a state. We are a nation of Israel. And we don't like to address the fact internally. Listen, religion is part of the discourse in Israel. You don't create a homeland for the Jewish people and, uh, and leave religion out of the conversation. That's why separation of state and religion is not a supported option even by secular Israelis. It's not. They don't look for that model. You know, when, we, when, when the country funds Jewish education, even in secular schools, they don't fund it well. Um, or when the public calendar is the Jewish calendar. It's not the Israeli, it's the Jewish calendar. Um, so Israelis are very... But you have to admit that the perception, the perception in the rest of the world is that Israelis are willing to make all sorts of concessions to the Orthodox simply for political power, um, where, when they're not willing to recognize that there's you know, many other factors involved and, and, and what it might entail. It seems as if they're saying it doesn't matter who the, what these people believe, right? We're just going to use them for, for their voting bloc. No, that's true. So it doesn't, it's, it's not that they don't care about religion. It's they're willing to compromise their religious freedom for the sake of other issues that they value more. The front line of the, of the cultural war in Israel is how do we get more secular, traditional, and even modern Orthodox Jews to vote on issues of the quality and nature of Jewish identity in Israeli society. So we need people who who are willing to say that the nature of my country, the values, the, the nature of Jewish life, is how we live as Jews in the country is just as important as the borders of Israel. And if we do that, then we're going to say to the ultra-Orthodox, I will give you money for your students in yeshiva. I will even let your students not serve in the army. But what you don't have a right to do is to determine the nature of religious society in the country for everybody else. For yourselves, knock yourself out. You have total, religious freedom applies to you too. And by the way, you know, the, the ultra-Orthodox don't even use the rabbinate in Israel. They, they have positions in the rabbinate because it's jobs, but when they have to convert or they have to marry, they use their own rabbis. So here it is. You have this group of people who wants to tell everybody else how to live their Jewish lives. Here, a partnership between Israeli Jews and world Jewry um, have to work. Is it going to be easy? No, but that'll be the front line of, of the future of, of, of the relationship between Israel and world Jewry. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it sounds very wonderful and utopian, but in the diaspora, I think that it's, it's fundamentally different. I think that, first of all, like, for example, Reformed Jews, you know, feel sometimes more comfortable living Jewishly in the diaspora than, than, in, than in the world, than in Israel, um, which, you know, is an existential question, if you ask me, that the vast majority of Jews may not feel comfortable living Jewishly um, in Israel. So your sense of Israeli society is very correct. Um, it's much more complicated. Zionism is not an anti-religious agenda as it was amongst the early, early Zionists. Um, so that is absolutely correct. Your statement that many Jews around the world feel more Jewishly free and comfortable outside of Israel, that's, that's a failure of Israel. And I'm not a utopian, I'm an educator. And the job of educators is to have a vision of utopia and to get to work. 
And I'm working. And I have a rabbinic school in which I'm training Orthodox, concerned reform, religious, secular men and women rabbis to go out and to build communities in Israel which will, ed- which will advocate and push for a different type of Judaism. I'm, I'm teaching teachers. I'm teaching students. I'm out there day and night. Have we won yet, Avi? Not at all. Has this election been a setback? Absolutely, yes, it has. Um, and it just means we have to work harder. But I want to pivot just a bit. Um, there was a study that put out um, by a group called Independent Jewish Voices. They painted a picture of Palestinian activists on campus fearing for their careers as professors, students feeling afraid to speak up for fear of pro-Israel professors or students in class. Right? The study itself, I don't want to get into whether it has issues or not. It was you know, put out by an extreme left-wing organization. It might be biased. Let's put bracket that and assume that this might be true on its face. Right. I read about this and I'm thinking to myself, how can two groups on opposite sides of a debate feel exactly the same thing? How is it that each side is terrified of the other and the other claims to be equally terrified at the same time? Both sides seem to be speaking up in the public square without any issue. And yet, right, everybody's afraid of everybody else. And I think that there are relationships to what we were just talking about with, with regards to this. And I'm, I'm curious what you would say to activists on both sides of this discussion, because again, it's the same thing, Israel and the diaspora and Israel activism and pro-Palestinian activism on campus, right? If, if both sides are completely afraid of the other, um, and I don't think Israelis at, at the Amcha level, at the individual's national level, are really afraid of what's going on in the diaspora, but people in the diaspora are petrified of what's going on in Israel, and Israel is sort of indifferent about it, and they see that as a problem, right? How, what would you say to two sets of activists on two sides who are both completely afraid of each other and yet, or at least say that they are, and yet both sides seems to be talking and, and living, you know, fine, and both sides are, are protesting, both sides are, are doing their thing, and yet every side is completely afraid of the other? See, there's both, the, there's, the, there's the experience, the feeling, and then there's the political gain you make or you achieve or you attain as a result of arguing in that way. The politics of fear sells, um, and it galvanizes your community. Everybody, the, our problem today is that everybody wants to be the victim. Everybody wants to be a victim. And it used to be that we actually wanted to win, and now I want to be the victim. <laughs> I, I, I don't really, you know, I, as an, as an Israeli, um, I'm a Jew of power. I'm not a victim anymore. And I thank God for the fact that I'm not a victim anymore. Now, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I have rights as a people. I believe Palestinians have rights. Talk to me about your rights. Talk to me about how your rights could work with my rights. Talk to me about to what I want to talk. As an Israeli, I want to speak about what I believe are Palestinian rights. I want to speak about what I believe. I, as a Zionist, yearn that there should be a Palestinian state. I want to turn to Palestinians saying, what is your fear? Is, where do I fit into your, into your narrative? Now, when you make yourself a victim, then you could ignore me. This is not the case anymore. There's a Palestinian people. There's a Jewish people. Let's stop this silly game of who's the greater victim. Like, that's Okay, maybe it'll get you some short-term um, attention. But at the end of the day, it's when two people, and it's true, Israelis have more power right now than Palestinians. That's true. But when each side recognizes our ability to harm the other 
and our that our inalienable rights don't allow us to ignore the inalienable rights of others, then we could start a serious conversation. But when each one is claiming, you know, you're victimized, it's just, it, it doesn't get us anywhere. And at the end of the day, is it about proving that I alone am right? Or is it about creating a world where more peace and coexistence could, could reign? I choose for the, for the latter. The reality is, is that right now, there is a powerful Jewish community in the United States and Canada. There's a powerful Jewish community in Israel. And the issue that we face is how do we, two Jews of power, two Jews, and Avi, as you say, very, you're at home in Canada. You're at home. Two Jews who are at home, very comfortable. Do we want to walk together? Do we need anti-Semitism and crisis to walk together? Now, it's true. This government, if we pull it together, as you said, is pulling us apart. It is. So I'm not, I, 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 I'm deeply saddened, but I'm not, unlike Tom Friedman, I'm not sitting shiva for the Israel that we lost. We're still in the fight. 50%, the last, between the two, the two, the two poles, the, the country, the population was divided in half. So it's true. There is an ultra-Orthodox community that's strong. There is a, a third or a half of the religious Zionist community. There are some secular ultra-nationalists. Half of our country is with us. That's not bad. Now let's get to 60%, 70%, and then by the next election, we can return to power. The question is, are we going to walk away? Are we going to victimize ourselves, or are we going to get busy? I choose getting busy. Yeah, and I, I know you've spoken about this, or you've written about this, about the uh, that we no longer take certain things as givens, right? In, in, this getting busy means that we have to start um, promulgating great ideas, right? And showing that you can't just accept whatever it is on its face. Um, what do you think that this this marketplace of ideas then is going to look like when, um, with this government coming in, do you think that there are people that are going to opt out? What is the nature of the things that we are going to have to fight for and we're going to have to present as saying, this is what Israel believes and this is where we, we go that we're going to actively choose, right? What's, what, if we have to market, you know, liberal Jewish Hasbara, right, for Israel, what does that look like? It's very tough. And we're going to lose some people. Because there are people who are marginally connected now. Um, and, and they're going to ask themselves, what am I, is this an Israel that I want to have a relationship with? And we're going to lose some people. The question that we're going to face Which, is, by the way, I'm okay with. I'm not. Right? And I think <laughs> that we shouldn't have a... No, I'm serious. I really believe that if we believe in this idea of Bechira, if we believe that people return to a faith right, without resorting to Kirov and being orthodox, meaning if you can become from secular to a committed orthodox, uh, committed conservative Jew or a committed reformed Jew, we have to accept that people are going to say, these ideas are not for me anymore. That's correct. On that level, I agree with you. But I want to fight for them. I want to fight for giving, for, I want to fight for them Jewish. I want them to choose. They're going to have to choose to be Jewish. Everybody chooses now whether they want to be Jewish or they don't want to be Jewish. And they're going to have to choose whether they want to have a relationship with Israel or not. Now, right now, the government of Israel is not going to be a source which excites your, your Jewish and religious imagination. That Jewishly, you're going to feel that Israel is violating the values that you care about. Our challenge is to, is to give voice to a major part of Israeli society who cares about a different Judaism. And the government of Israel doesn't exhaust, doesn't exhaust uh, Israel. If a, if a certain government comes in place, is you're someone who you don't for, vote for in Canada, 
doesn't mean that's Canada. So the question is, can we win back Israel? And our, our responsibility over the next four years is to create very, very powerful voices that speak of a different Judaism and of a different Israel, an Israel that respects people of different identities and different beliefs and different nationalities, that respects Jews and non-Jews, um, that cares about religious pluralism and sees democracy as a Jewish value. We have a, okay, that's true. There are people in this coalition who don't share that. But I'm not, what, I'm giving up? I'm, I'm walking away? I'm never walking away. So if I can ask one uh, summative uh, sort of question, then um, supposing there was an, uh, an Israeli constitution, what would the role of religion in your mind be in such a constitution? Now, can I make a, a slight correction? Because Israel has 90% of a constitution. It's the last 10% that we don't have. And what we don't have pertains exactly to the question that you mentioned. And that is the clause about religious freedom. So we have the clause about Israel, about the principle of, of human dignity um, and freedom. Uh, um, that's, we have a basic law. We have Israel as, as the nation state of the Jewish people. Well, we need a clause which speaks to the inalienable rights of people to pursue their religious beliefs, um, supported equally by the state and within the public sphere. Now, that's the clause that the religious parties never wanted because they were frightened um, about competition. That's why now, once we have this basic law of human freedom and dignity, the Supreme Court has been using it as a religious freedom um, a, a, um, uh, foundation. And that's why they want the override clause so that they could silence the Supreme Court's power to keep that. So what would it look like? It would be to add a, fund, a law which speaks about all Israeli citizens as being equal, Jew and non-Jew alike that all Israeli citizens are equal, orthodox, conservative, reform, religious, secular alike, and that that equality comes with inalienable rights and demands on the society, demands on allocation of space, allocation of resources, allocation of respect. That's, that's the Israel that I buy into. That's the Israel I'm fighting for. And, uh, um, and, and that's the Israel that the Jewish people deserve. So That sounds like an Israel without a Rabbanut, though. Oh, no, not at all. Without it. I believe that you could have a, a rabbinate in Israel. You just have to have multiple rabbinates. The problem in Israel is that there's only one rabbinate who has the chutzpah to claim that they're the rabbinate of the state of Israel. They're not. They're not. Most Israelis don't care. They're forced into it. It would be an Israel in which every denomination has an equal rabbinate. Now, in Israel, paradoxically, um, I just finished this book um, that'll be coming out next year. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. But the only people who have religious freedom in Israel are non-Jews. <laughs> um, Christians and Muslims have complete religious freedom in Israel. There are 14 rabbinates or religious courts in Israel for every denomination. It's only the Jews who have one. So in the homeland of the Jewish people, the only group that doesn't have religious freedom are the Jews. That, that needs to change. Just to wrap, it up, to wrap things up then, um, where we're at really is that the message really has to change um, from within um, Israel to the diaspora. Um, do you think that there's a message that has to change within Israel from the diaspora? That I care about Israel and I'm not walking away. That I care about Israel and I'm going to fight for the Israel that I, that I need. That Israel, I could be a Zionist outside of Israel. Zionism is not exhausted by those who live in Israel. 
If Israel, I buy into the notion that Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. The homeland of the Jewish people, it's not the homeland of Israeli Jews or of Israelis. It means it has a place in the hearts, the minds, and the Judaism of Jews around the world. Make that statement. Make it, fight for it. There are allies that you have in Israel who will be there with you. But also know that it's not a simple fight. Victory is not around the corner. It's, going to requ- it's a marathon. If you're a marathon runner, we have a chance to win. Um, if you want short-term solutions, we're, you're not going to have the Israel you want. So communicate that love, communicate that responsibility, and, uh, and join. Zionism is about a worthwhile journey. That journey to the promised land, we're not there yet. Excellent. Um, Danielle Hartman, thank you so much for coming on Bonjour Chai. This has been most enlightening. Um, I believe you're speaking in Toronto on Monday, November 21st Correct. at 7.30 at Holy Blossom Temple. For those of you who want to go, you'll be in conversation with David Kaufman, who is also a friend of the uh, Frozen Chosen, as we call ourselves here. Um, so go check out uh, <laughs> Danielle Hartman and David Kaufman in conversation at Holy Blossom Temple on Monday, 20- Monday November 21st. Thank you so much for coming on. Avi, it's been my pleasure. And by the way, you're a good guy. You should make Aliyah. (laughs) Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit UJAIsrael75.com. That's UJAIsrael75.com. And here's that point in our show where we like to see what's been going on in the Jewish world over the past week or so. David, what news have been crossing your mind? To begin with, I, I want to tell some jokes because this will lead me right into the story. So he, here are my jokes. And, and let me know what you think of them, okay? Of course. Those are called Sephardic Jews, or as my grandmother called them, animals. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Bear with me, though. <laughs> Jews are racist, but we don't see skin color. We see IQ and income levels. We're cheap, but only compared to you guys. We're not cheap compared to Chaim and Shlomo. And finally... Goy is Yiddish for non-Jew. And just so you know, when you hear it, you think it's fun and friendly. It's not. They're shitting on you to your face. Um, I mean, they're not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Now, who do you think made these jokes? Well, at first I was going to be make a joke that maybe it was another Kanye thing. But when you started saying Shlomo and all that, I was like, no, this is too Jewish or someone who's too in the know. Exactly. So with everything going on, I was going to say Dave Dave Chappelle did not say any of these terribly insensitive bad jokes. It was Ari Shafir, a Jewish stand-up comedian. 
He's got this whole routine, and for people who don't know who uh, Shafir is, he's a, he's a Jew, he's 48 years old from New York, left Orthodox Judaism after attending yeshiva, and is, obs- you know, he talks about how Jews are obsessed with sex, um, he, he mocks Jewish religion and rituals and menstrual cycles, and he even goes into like 10-minute diatribes of masturbation, Holocaust jokes, and pushy Jews. Now, to back up, my question is, why is it okay for Ari Shafir to say these types of non-funny Jewish jokes, but in the past week, everybody has had an opinion on Dave Chappelle's stand-up routine for SNL. And for those who don't know anything about Dave Chappelle, he's a very famous uh, American comedian. He's been heavily criticized in the past for making what people would consider some transphobic transphobic um, jokes all, all around. So he came out and he had this whole bit, this Jewish bit, that I can go into more details if you want. But I guess my question is that came out from this article, really, uh, from the foreword that sort of said, why is does this comedian get a pass, Ari Shafir, when Dave Chappelle is being pil- pilloried? I don't know. Why, why does he? I, I think the obvious answer is Ari Shafir is so Jewish, right? He is, he is, he is like, Judaism is oozing out of him. So it's almost like we're saying, well, if you're Jewish, you can probably get away with saying anything shitty you want about Jews. But as soon as you're outside the tribe, anything that is perceived as anti-Semitic is verboten. I, I know that there are some people who are like, oh, we can laugh at ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And I think there's a time and place for that. But when Jews make like money grubbing jokes or stuff like that, and it's like, ha, ha, it's because we're Jewish. I don't like it. What, why I'm don't like, you like what? it? It feels like uh, an attempt to try to like maybe suppress the fear that we have of being attacked or like the fact that there is anti-Semitism. It's like, oh, well, if we normalize it, then I can't be hurt if someone else does it. It's like trying to kind of make it normal um, is just what's coming to my mind right now. I just don't think we need to propagate that. Um, I think there's some sometimes, you know, I understand like making fun of ourselves, like ourselves in a lighthearted way, but I feel like if that's like your whole thing and you're, you know, using that like in your comedy routine and you're really pushing the envelope, like it borders on questionable, I think. It borders on obsession or it's almost like when a comedian just keeps saying the F word constantly where at first it's for, you know, it's it's funny once, but then it just becomes shock value again and again. It's like, this is, you have nothing else to offer us but this thing. Yeah, 100%. But I just wanted to, to switch topics a little bit and bring you to an article that I read. Um, it came out a few months ago, but uh, it just came to my attention. Did you hear about uh, how in Israel there was a very rich uh, Russian billionaire diamond merchant's daughter who paid um, secular Israeli celebrities who had been on reality shows um, to promote... Uh, the orthodox view of Nida, um, which maybe let's get Avi to explain this since you are the rabbi in the room. 
Can you tell us what Nida is? Nida are the, the rules of ritual purity that apply to women and their menstrual cycles. And what would that look like? Um, well, generally speaking, in the modern day and age, um, a woman would, uh, from the moment that a woman starts her cycle until seven days after she finishes it, she is in a period of ritual separation, uh, I guess one would call it. It's not uncleanness. It has nothing to do with whether your hands are dirty or whether menstrual blood is dirty or anything like that. Um, and at the end of that period, she goes to the mikvah, um, which is a body of water, um, which was collected directly from rainwater. We can get into the details of that in another time, in another direction. Um, and then at that point, she can resume intimacy or even contact with her partner. So the, the whole story was that this news reporter from Channel 12 saw a video clip, saw a video clip um, of a former reality TV star, Shamika. Um, and she was talking about how she was trying out Nita with her partner, and he was not happy about the fact that they hadn't been touching. And so the reporter looked into it and dove deeper and then found out this was a whole campaign. Um, even though when this particular star was approached, she said, oh, I've actually been interested in trying out these uh, purity rituals. So it wasn't for the money. I did it for myself. Uh, but a lot of people uh, wrote in about how they were upset about this idea of um, Instagramifying uh, this orthodox ritual and they found that it was demeaning to women and then some other people came in and said no it's not so what do we what do we think about this the fact that there's this uh orthodox rich person who's getting someone else to kind of go out and 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 put this message out there is this propaganda is this a good thing is this a bad thing what are your thoughts um i mean how is this different from a celebrity promoting you know, Mormonism or evangelical Christianity or um, something else, uh, some other faith that they were, you know, interested in. And uh, this is what they do, right? Um, okay, so here's another question then. Is this any different than a celebrity endorsing a product? Like, you know how sometimes it's like, I use this shampoo and that's why my hair is so shiny. So is this on the same level or is it different because it's religious? It's true. Why is it, why is it different than, than promoting a, a service or a product? And if this person is not under any duress of any kind and they're like, hey, this works for me, this works for my brand, and this works for the people that are following me, I will, I will try it out and do it and then probably move on to the next big fad thing going on. Yeah, like Alana, would you do a, a voiceover for a mikvah ad? Given that you've never, like, oh. you know, uh, like I'm not. Wait, I don't. I, I'm not. Given that I'm not married. Hey, that's. I don't have. I, I, don't I wasn't have gonna guess whether you went to the mikvah ever or not. Maybe you're a single woman who decided that she wants to go to the mikvah for other reasons. I'm not gonna, you know, go there. Sure. But if you're saying that you've never been to the mikvah, would you do a voiceover for the mikvah? And maybe you're like tacitly promoting it. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's quite the same. But I don't know this woman that did the ad. So it's hard for me to speak on her behalf because for me, like maybe I would want to go to the mikvah sometimes like once I'm married, because I think that there is something really uh, beautiful about that ritual. Um, and I like the idea of immersing yourself in water to kind of like move through things and cleanse. Sure. And But would you turn so down, I, would I you turn down a gig um, because it might be well, seen as an endorsement of it? Of that? I don't think so. But if it was something I disagreed on, like, for example, there have been times where my agent sent me uh, emails saying, are you comfortable doing a political campaign ad? And sometimes I really have to think, do I really want to be the face of this party? Even if it's just a commercial, 
um, it does make a very big statement. And that's something that I'd be more careful about deciding whether to do. And, and I would imagine that somebody who actually got paid to do this is still in some way, you know, tacitly accepting. Yeah, I, I, don't, have, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I do it myself, but this is something, you know, I'm Jewish and this is a Jewish thing. Good answer. Awesome. Um, I found an op-ed in Mishpacha magazine, which I read sometimes. It's the uh, ultra-Orthodox magazine that comes out by and for pretty much the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, You know, it's the kind of magazine where there's no faces of women on there, even in the the women's magazine part of it uh, and whatnot. Um, And this was called The Gold Standard by Elisheva Appel. and, and the subhead is Simcha Gemachs, and I'll get to what a Gemach is in a second. AliExpress and Shine, or Shein, sorry, have made it easy to get the right look, but at what cost? Uh, a Gemach is basically um, a charitable organization that have become increasingly, increasingly specialized. So um, in the first sentence, she talks about tablecloth and Simcha setup Gemachs are awesome, right? They can be so much fun to browse, such a service to the community, and I can't wait to plan our upcoming bar mitzvah. And so basically, you often have, like, let's say you you want to do a bar mitzvah on Shabbat morning and you want gold tablecloths for the bar mitzvah. You don't have to go and buy them. You can go to a tablecloth gamach and somebody has, you know, 20 tablecloths of each color and is willing to lend them out for a deposit or something like that. And they'll have gamachs for chairs for your house. If you're having a lot of guests, they'll have uh, gamachs for dresses for bridesmaids and, you know, little girl, flower girl dresses and Anything and everything that you can think of, right? wheelchair gamachs and uh, for, for sick people, crutch gamachs, right? all of these things. So they have all of these. And um, she's lamenting the fact that it's become so easy to really, really be fancy, um, especially given that, you know, she and an AliExpress make it's so easy to make a really fancy looking event and to look really fancy. But in reality, right, at what cost is it? Now, it used to be that it was okay to be a have not. And that if you were a rabbi's kid, you know, you didn't have the fanciest outfits or only a couple of kids had really fancy special outfits. And most kids were okay with it not being there. Um, but it's become so cheap to have this that now everybody feels like they are the haves and not the have-nots. And the cost of our, in within our community is that everybody wants to outdo everybody else. And instead of um, spending less because you have less, right? You end up spending more um, of the cheaper stuff, right? Well, it's so cheap to be able to buy a Kubrick Zirconia ring. Well, I'm just going to get a bigger and fancier one then instead of just being modest about whatever it is that you can afford. And this, and she was lamenting the modesty piece of it. And I was stopped. It's, I, I, like, I finished through this article and the entire time I'm sitting there and thinking to myself, wait a second. At no time did she stop and ask herself at what cost to the rest of the world, an environmental cost, at a labor cost, at the cost of um, doing business in this multinational way, um, that it becomes so cheap to do things. And I'm sorry, but like, I really, um, it bothered me. Um, And I started realizing that, like, what is the cost to how we are living when you have a community that is willing to spend and use so much plastic goods and paper goods. And yes, I know Shabbos is complicated and, and, and it takes a lot of time. And, uh, but, but the, without thinking about anything beyond the, the, the own um, walls and boundaries of within the Haredi community, the Haredi community often can do damage to the larger community um, as a result of this, you know, sometimes closed-mindedness. And I'm sorry, but like, yes, it's a cost to the community that the modesty levels or the levels of fanciness, so to speak, have gone up and up and up. And that, that is a problem, right? It is a human emotional uh, problem. It, it, it relates to how we relate to each other within a community. Um, but you absolutely need to be thinking about about um, the greater world at large and to say maybe we shouldn't, and 
there are not many people that actively go and say, yes, Shein is wonderful. AliExpress is great, right? Um, without thinking about what the consequences are um, within there. So that's um, that's what's been on my mind. This, what do you think? This reminds this reminds me of a conversation I had with an almost but mitzvah girl uh, a couple weeks ago. Who uh, she goes to a Lubavitch girls' school in Montreal and told me that her school doesn't let them have their own bat mitzvahs because they don't want to create a sense of competition. So that's like another angle that I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on because that's this kind of a similar concept of, you know, you don't want it to become this lavish thing where it's all about the fanciness and all about who's spending more money on their bat mitzvah and, and, and the fancy tablecloths and the fancy this and the fancy that. And instead they have like a group one at the school. She seemed really pissed about it. that <laughs> She well, couldn't have her own thing. <laughs> I would be okay with it if they did the same thing for the boys. But no, boys yes, all get their own. That was the counter. All boys that get was their the counter argument. Someone else at the table said. And all of the girls <laughs> get, and all of the couples get fancy weddings, despite the like these these edicts that they put out and they suggest, well, we shouldn't spend this much and you shouldn't spend that much. So if the only people that are really suffering there here are bat mitzvah age girls, um, it's it's an incredibly sexist thing to do. Sorry. I- I mean, I, I just feel, you know, the stereotype of people who are orthodox is, you know, they live frumpy lives. They're, they're, always, they're always told never to dress ostentatiously or anything like that. And this is the first time where they, they want to zazz up and zhuzh up a bit of themselves. And now we feel like we're, they, we're not happy with them even doing that. I, I feel like I'm thinking, I'm, I feel like I'm being a bit of a hypocrite thinking that. Yeah, I can't answer on their behalf. I think that they might say potentially that the the goal is to, you know, live grounded lives and to have something nice, but don't have to uh, spill out into materialistic culture. And that that's the problem is that ultimately, when you start a little bit into materialistic culture, you get much further into materialistic culture, and that that's a big problem. Um, But you're right, I think people should zhuzh up a little bit. Um, But yeah, zhuzh up. Spoken like the, the, the true zhuzh master. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week, that thing that makes us feel goodish, Jewish, Canadianish, if we can, um, that we've been uh, reading, listening to, uh, checking out. Alana, what's your nachas this week? So I don't know if you heard about this new movie coming out called The Fablemans. I'm actually really curious to see it. It's about Steven Spielberg's childhood growing up in post-war Arizona. And to add a Canadian spin to it, it stars the Jewish Canadian actor, Seth Rogen. Um, and uh, the 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 movie was uh, written and produced by Steven Spielberg, as well as uh, Tony Kushner, who for theater fans know um, because he wrote Angels in America. The Fablemans, to add another Canadian spin to it, premiered at TIFF. So uh, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it, but it's going to be out in theaters. So you can catch that, The Fablemans. We should all check it out. We should. And then talk about it. Yeah, I hope to. David, 
What's your nachos this week? This week I got to sit down with a good buddy of mine, James Avermenko, who hosts a podcast called Friendless. Hey there, sweeties. It's me, your pal James Avermenko, back once again with a brand new episode of Friendless, the only podcast that tries to teach you how to be a better friend by losing every friend I have. Where basically his whole shtick is he wants to invite someone on his Facebook uh, group and remove them by the end of the episode. So his whole goal is to get rid of all of his Facebook friends one episode at a time. We sat down, we chatted about what does it mean to be a good friend. We talked a lot about this particular podcast too. And we really got to have a great catch up because he lives in Vancouver now. He moved, he's been moving around from Calgary to Saskatoon, living in Van City now. And it was just a really wonderful opportunity to check in with a friend that I haven't spoken to in a long time. Um, and it sort of reestablished a lot of this, a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast about social media, about the problems of Instagram and Twitter and anti-Semitism too. So I had a, I had a great, great time doing that. Are you, does that mean you're no longer Facebook friends with him? We are no longer Facebook friends. The caveat is he is still on Instagram, so I can always message him on Insta, but um, he's... Every week, reducing and getting smaller, that Facebook group. All right. Well, this person um, is no longer there. She lives in New York, but she is straight from your newly adopted city of Calgary. I don't know if you know Ophira Eisenberg. Um, any of you? She's a comedian, New Yorker. Um, well, like I said, Calgarian, Jewish. Um, she has a new podcast out called Parenting is a Joke. Uh it is uh, very funny. It's not so much about advice, like parenting advice and stuff like that, but it's the experience of being a parent. Uh, she interviews other comedians, quite a few other members of the tribe, right? Uh, Jesse Klein is on there, Eugene Merman. She's already interviewed Catherine Reitman, right? Who says we don't run Hollywood? I mean, like, let's be honest. I'm kidding, people. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, it was very funny. It was reminded me because, you know, there's, there's a period when you're like super into like everything related to parenting. And then there's a point in your kids' lives when you're just like, you're kind of done with it because they, they sort of like, they, they're on auto mode, right? They know how to take their own showers and they know how to, you know, not quite pack their lunches yet, but they can if they have to. And like, they know how to do stuff. And so you stop thinking about parenting as like, oh, the parenting this and the parenting that and the parenting this. But this was a great one. Um, and uh, I had a lot of fun. There's five episodes out and I hope to hear many, many more. Ophira Eisenberg, parenting is a joke. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending November 19th, Shabbat Parashat Chaye Sarah. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We're a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's actually one of the best ways that we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.